cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest and his name is Chris Brightman. He is the Chief Investment Officer of Research Affiliates, better known as RAFI, the firm which is one of the prime drivers behind the trend towards smart beta, or fundamental indexing, as it is more accurately called. Uh, We go off into the weeds about portfolio construction, what drives returns, what are the best ways to approach constructing a portfolio, Our research affiliates, their models run about $200 billion worth of offerings. Uh, This is quite a fascinating conversation, and I think you'll find it very intriguing. So with no further ado, my conversation with Chris Brightman of Research Affiliates. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Chris Brightman. He is the Chief Investment Officer of Research Affiliates, whose investment strategies currently manage over $200 billion. He's previously, he was the board chair at the Investment Fund for Foundations. Uh, he was the CIO of the Strategic Investment Group and Director of Global Equity Strategy at UBS Asset Management. Chris Brightman, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you for having me. So that's a really interesting um, resume. You've worked at some very storied places. What first attracted you to the field of investment management? I arrived at my uh, university, Virginia Tech, having been accepted into the liberal arts uh, school. And after listening to the dean of the liberal arts school address the auditorium of new students explaining why you'd made the right choice i approached the podium and said i think i'm in the wrong place i want to go to the school of business and without missing a beat or even seeming to notice the irony the the dean said oh yeah well you walk down three uh, you know buildings over to that way and and i uh, I, I changed before i even uh, began classes to the business program mostly because i figured you have to understand this is the 70s mhm i wanted a job when i graduated and i felt like uh, majoring in business would uh, would be more likely to lead to a job than uh, liberal arts. I don't know if that was right, but that's that's what I did. And then I chose- Well, it clearly worked, right? Yeah. And, and I and, chose finance because it was uh, more interesting than accounting. And for some of our younger listeners, the 1970s was a period of stagflation, high inflation, and high unemployment. Um, what was it like coming out of school into that environment? The- I graduated in the early 80s, and the early 80s were an awful time. There was a nasty recession, and I was really lucky Double that I graduated. Double recession, yeah. actually, right? 82 was horrible. Mm-hmm. 83 was a little better, and I was lucky to graduate in 83. 84 and 85 was boom times. So right. It was great, uh, but uh, but I graduated in 83, and... Uh, what I think really got me into the investment management industry was an internship that I had with uh, First Chicago in 1982 over the summer. And uh, my internship was with the Institutional Trust Department at First Chicago, which later became First Chicago Investment Advisors, which later became Brinson Partners. 
Mm -hmm. And uh, Gary Brinson, the founder of Brinson Partners, uh, was one of my, was really my first mentor in the business beginning in 1982. So you were working on the endowment side of uh, the street. How does the endowment side differ from working with retail investors and people whose money is with 401ks and IRAs, et cetera? So I've had about a three and a half decade career, 35 years in the business, of which I took a rather brief five-year detour into the nonprofit area managing the University of Virginia endowment. And it differs in a number of ways. Probably the um, most interesting to an outsider is the access that one gains to elite uh, investment managers. Uh, How big was the endowment at the time? A little over $5 billion. Okay, so that's real money. I think, interestingly, though, it's less challenging. It's an easier job. Uh, I'm so surprised you say that, and maybe this is me projecting, but I would imagine that running an endowment, and, and my frame of reference is all the craziness we've seen with the Harvard Endowment over the past 20 years, and what recently happened with the Yale Endowment and Swenson, I would imagine there are so many political constituencies to deal with. You were the CIO at the Virginia University of Virginia Endowment, and that covered what school or schools? UVA. It's just one endowment, $5 billion. Actually, uh, fascinatingly enough, uh, it's much more complicated than that. Uh, the University of Virginia has dozens of nonprofit organizations, all of whom have their own fundraising staff, their own endowments, and the University of Virginia Investment Management Company, mm -hmm. a 5013C nonprofit corporation right. with its own board and its own uh, audit, its own charter, et cetera, serves as uh, an investment advisor to those various uh, pools of money. So in many ways, while I was there, I did have to address many different clients. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is very political. You're quite correct about that. Do they all invest the same way or does each of them have a different investment philosophy and, and a different set of goals and therefore a different portfolio look? Uvimco, the University of Virginia Investment Management Company, pools the money and invests it in one uh, a fashion. That said, uh, all of the different pools of money don't have to invest with the University of Virginia Investment Management Company. They can if they choose, or they cannot, or they can invest part of the money. Mm -hmm. uh, for many years, the law school wasn't convinced that it wanted all of its money in the, uh, in, in the pool. So just uh, part of the law school endowment was invested in Uvimco. So I would imagine that investing on behalf of an endowment today is even more challenging and complex given everything we've seen with socially responsible investing, low carbon, uh, pick, pick your poison. I can imagine, that's what I meant by the constituencies. Because um, when I, you and I are about the same age, when I was in college, I remember um, divestment from apartheid and people wanting to pull money away from uh, South Africa. I can't imagine what it's like today in the college atmosphere. It seems to be everybody is much more sensitive to specific causes than perhaps when you and I went to school. It was, that was present when I was there. I don't know that if it, I, I really can't say whether it's gotten better or worse. You brought up the interesting example of the Harvard Management Company. Mm -hmm. uh, Jack Meyer, truly uh, a great uh, investor, was essentially chased out by uh, alumni who thought it was obscene that uh, investment managers were at the Harvard Management Company were compensated as they were. Uh, and that's probably the highest profile political uh, snafu, but it's by no means um, uh, limited. I recall uh, Utimco, the University of Texas Investment Management Company, reneging on their incentive compensation plan that they had promised really? to their staff. Uh, that would beget litigation, at least. Uh, in no, the not no. The 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 staff. They were very high integrity people. They just they just sucked it up and uh, took the hit to their compensation and, really? and continued on. Yeah. 
See, I, I think you encourage bad behavior when you allow people to not honor their written contracts. So I, I don't want to be that moral hazard is a problem for me. Uh, uh, but when I said, uh, getting back to why I said I think it's a little less challenging, the the job is very straightforward. You understand who is the beneficiary of the assets being managed, you understand what the objective is, and you have a very clear notion. I'm, I'm investing for the university to generate funds to pay scholarships, to advance research, to support the university's general mission. Uh, and you're not uh, competing uh, every day for a fickle group of uh, uh, clients and investors. The for-profit investment management industry, where I've spent 30 years as opposed to uh, five years, uh, you have all of the same complexities mm -hmm. and difficulties and challenges of investing, which makes the job so fun and interesting, but a whole additional layer of complexity of competing in the business of the investment management industry. My special guest today is Chris Brightman. He is the chief investment officer of Research Affiliates, whose strategies run about $170 billion uh, in assets. Let's talk a little bit about smart beta, which is really uh, a phrase uh, Research Affiliates founder, uh, Rob Arnott, is credited with, if not inventing, well, certainly um, publicizing. Uh, Tell us what smart beta is and why investors should be thinking about it. Well, smart beta is a fun and provocative label for a substantial and important evolution in the investment management industry. We are able today to take well-researched and well-understood principles of investment management and use that information to create simple, transparent, low-cost investment strategies that deliver more of the return to the end investor and consume less of the return in the fees and expenses charged to a typical active manager. So so here's the pushback that, that the there's a group of folks who, who look at um, smart beta and say, well, it's going to be a little more expensive than just straight up indexing up until the fourth quarter anyway, the S&P 500, a market cap weighted index has been on a legendary streak from the lows in 09 till let's, let's call it September 2018. That's a solid decade. Market effectively tripled. Why should an investor go with a fundamental weighted index as opposed to a market cap weighted index like the S&P 500? That's a great question. And it depends, I believe, on what an investor is trying to achieve. The advice given by many, for example, one of my heroes, uh, Jack Bogle from Vanguard, that most investors would be better off investing in a very simple portfolio of mutual funds that track capitalization-weighted indices and do nothing else mm -hmm. would be far better off. If we look at what investors actually do, and there's considerable research on this subject. They tend to chase fads, chase performance, and generate returns that are approximately 2% per year below simple cap-weighted indices before high fees and expenses. Right. They do that bad. That's what the typical individual investor does. And uh, Jack uh, Bogle's quite right that they would be far better off uh, simply having a completely passive investment in low-cost uh, uh, low capitalization-weighted index funds. However, there are people on the other side of that trade. Where does that 2% go that, that, that some investors are underperforming the market, somebody else has to be outperforming the market? Zero-sum gain for every loser, there's a winner and vice versa. Correct. And we know where it goes. It goes to the rebalancers. 
the people that are selling the market what the market wants to buy when the market wants to buy it and buying from the market what the market wants to sell when the market wants to sell it. And the fundamental index is a simple, elegant way of automatically pursuing that contrarian trading approach of rebalancing against the market. So that's very much a value-driven strategy. You're, you're selling what everybody wants, which probably means it's pricey and it's had a good run, and you're buying what everybody hates, which means it's probably cheap uh, because it's so disliked. F fair statement? It's exactly correct. And the market has to pay a premium for that rebalancing, thinking of it as market making or being the house, providing insurance. In order for the market to clear, there has to be that premium. Now, it's easy to say, and it's straightforward to do, but it's not easy to do. It's not easily, it's not easy emotionally to do. Uh, and that's why having simple, transparent, rules-based process uh, aids in that kind of rebalancing. And, and those investors uh, earn a return over the market. But unless you understand, and unless you can stick with the approach, it's probably not right for you. So, so let, let, me, let me jump in here, because um, I want to address that unless you can withstand, unless you can stay with it, value goes through these periodic cycles where it's underperforming the broad indices. Uh, and up until September of 2018, what was it, a decade of underperformance by value over growth? That seemed to have begun to reverse in the fourth quarter. So first question is, is the underperformance period of value, are we seeing that regression to the mean where value is going to catch up and pass growth. How, how do you see the current environment um, for value given the long-term underperformance? And by the way, on a regular basis, value will lag growth and then catch up and pass it. We've seen it in every bear market. What all the hot stocks get crushed, value blows right by it. How many times have we heard Warren Buffett is washed up and it, all, it never turns out to be true? I think you said it well. Over the long run, history teaches that a value investment strategy outperforms uh, growth. That's been confirmed in every long-term study of every market around the world. However, the market will test your patience. The, there will be long and difficult periods of underperformance for a value strategy, and only by sticking with it over the long run uh, will you actually succeed. If you throw in the towel in 1998 and 1999 and, and, and buy you know, AOL and, and Cisco- uh, As that's lots not, of folks did. Right. Um, to their great regret. What I can say is that the dispersion between the pricing of value and growth stocks reached in the last year or two extremes that we almost never see. Not quite to the extreme of the tech bubble, but about as significant as we see. That's perhaps an indicator that the cycle is about to turn. And then, of course, we've seen a lot of uh, market turmoil uh, suggestive of an inflection point. So I, I, I wouldn't uh, confidently predict uh, that the cycle has turned and value is going to go on a, uh, a, a long tear of outperformance, but the environment does seem to suggest that that's a, a distinct possibility. And, and last smart beta question. Some folks have said the advantage of smart beta and fundamental indexing is that the outperformance comes from taking additional risk. Burton Malkiel, other folks like that have said that. What, what are your thoughts on that? I find the debate about whether factor returns and, of course, the most uh, the largest, most persistent and uh, longest discovered factor is value are generated by risk or generated by behavior and inefficiency. Mm -hmm. The truth of the matter is it's both 
they're intertwined, there's feedback, the uh, real world is much more interesting than these dry uh, theories and models. Um, and I, I guess I would say there is a risk component and we should be thankful that there's a risk component to the value factor return because it means that it can't be and won't be arbitraged away. So let's talk a little bit about institutional and retail investors. You've worked with both. You've alluded that there are some differences uh, previously. What is the most consequential difference between how institutional investors operate and how mom and pop retail investors think? Institutional investors operate in a governance structure and an environment that prevents the worst investment mistakes. Uh, retail investors don't. Um, there are many advisors that try to bring uh, this sort of uh, discipline and structure to the practice of retail investing. And I think some, uh, many, uh, have great success, but not as much uh, in as the institutional context. Let me give you a general concept of what the results look like. The mm -hmm. results look like retail investors, on average, through being too emotional, trading too much, uh, generally lose on the order of 2% a year of their returns uh, relative to the broad markets. Institutional investors, after fees and expenses, generally get about market returns. If you look at the returns before their fees, expenses, and costs, they beat the market. Mm -hmm. But most of that is absorbed by the fees, expenses, and costs, the staff, the investment management fees. Uh, uh, that uh, uh, absorbs most, if not all, of the uh, uh, outperformance. Um, but that's 2% better than the retail investor. And I think that's from superior governance structures that uh, prevent the worst mistakes. So now there have been a number of studies that have come out about both retail and institutional. Um, I recently saw something out of uh, NYU Stern School of Business about the underperformance of foundations and endowments uh, versus a simple 60-40 portfolio. And according to, to that research, the institutions are barely doing a whole lot better than individuals, at least at these nonprofit foundations, endowments, etc. So cost is clearly a factor. What else is the driving factor? You, you brought up it's a zero sum, so for every winner there's a loser. Uh, are the institutions winning at the expense of the retail investors, or is there a um, a win and, and loss component between different endowments? Some do well, some do poorly, but on average they get, as you said, uh, market-based returns. Well, there's a cyclical and a secular uh, time horizon. On the secular time horizon, I think we find Nonprofits, particularly large uh, university endowments, uh, tend to get the best results. Mm -hmm. Pension funds, uh, public pension funds uh, get, as I said just a moment ago, about the market return after their fees and expenses, and retail investors lose about 2% a year. Uh, that 2% a year is mostly paid to uh, uh, professional uh, uh, investors and value investors. Now, that gets to the cyclical component. Uh, if we evaluated the performance of the endowments up until the global financial crisis, uh, there were many books written uh, about their remarkable decades of outperformance. Right. We've been in a cycle, a 10-year horizon, where growth has outperformed value. And to oversimplify, most endowments are going to be value investors. So I think you've seen a period where value investors have struggled and uh, it's been a difficult time for the value-oriented endowment model. But I think 
it, 25 years from now, looking back, you'll still see the uh, success of that model. So I'm going to ask you to go a little outside of your comfort zone. Using that same secular versus cyclical time period, the pre-crisis era, we saw a lot of investments in venture capital and private equity and hedge funds that actually had done pretty well. And since the mid-2000s, you know, venture capital has lost a little bit of its shine. None of the big well-known names are performing as well as they did previously. Same with a lot of the hedge fund guys that used to shoot the lights out. They seem to be struggling. What is it about this past decade that's been so difficult for so many different styles of investment, investing? Well, there's a couple of things. One, we've had uh, just a stupendous roaring bull market. Uh, and so it just is easy to comprehend from first logical principles that a strategy that is 100% long stocks is going to outperform a strategy that is both long and short stocks during a sure. monumental bull market. For sure. uh, so that basically explains the difficult performance environment for uh, hedge funds. Uh, what has worked, what kind of alternative investment, uh, if you want to use that uh, uh, label, uh, has worked over the last 10 years? Well, private equity. Mm -hmm. uh, why? Well, because they don't just go 100% long, they go 100% long with some leverage. Uh, <laughs> so that works pretty well in a uh, roaring bull market. Uh, I uh, would guess if I had to uh, uh, put my money on who outperforms over the next 10 years, it would be on the hedge funds rather than the private equity uh, 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 funds uh, because markets don't uh, always go in straight lines up. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Uh, a lot of your research and commentary um, that I find quite fascinating you're very good at, at, at crafting a headline that is intriguing, and I want to just throw a few of them at you and, and see what you, uh, what you have to say about that. One of them was, are we at peak profits? And I have to ask the question, because people have been saying we're at peak profits for, I don't know, four, five, six years. This whole run-up, we've been hearing people say that. Are we at peak profits? We, we discussed all of the monopoly rents and the other issues with crony capitalism earlier, uh, organically speaking, have we hit the point where profitability can't go higher? Or can this trend continue for the foreseeable future? Until policy changes, the trend will continue. And I see no evidence of policy change coming out of the divided government we presently have in Washington. However, uh, Markets are forward discounting. The amount of the value of the S&P 500 or any given stock in the S&P 500 that is the dividends that are going to be paid over the next two or three years is trivial. Most of the value is discounting future cash flows over the decades. And I believe that we are seeing an increasing likelihood of a very significant change in policy, perhaps as soon as the uh, 2021 uh, new administration. I would expect and this is an interesting forecast. I, if you want to, if you want to handicap who's going to be our next president, take a look at who 
seems like a 21st century Teddy Roosevelt. Meaning a trust buster. Correct. Someone who's going to come in and say, hey, you know, 93% of the search being with Google, who I'm okay welcoming Google as our new overlords, but I understand the antitrust argument against it, or half of all online retail transactions being with Amazon, that's an immense concentration of power in a, in a very small number of hands. Uh, there's been almost no appetite for antitrust enforcement. There's been no appetite for preventing these giant mergers. The FD, when was the last time somebody, other than CNN and I, I forgot who it was even, the, the merger was with, that um, the president was unhappy with because he doesn't like the CNN coverage. But that whole Time Warner, CNN, whatever the last uh, broadband merger, um, other than that one political example, has there really been much in the way of stopping big companies from becoming giant companies in order to preserve a, a, a fair and competitive landscape? Uh, no, there has not been, and uh, and we have a strange economy as a result, one that is not working for the average uh, worker. Let, let We're known uh, at Research Affiliates for being leaders in factor investing. Mm -hmm. Let me talk to you about the most recently discovered factor and how it relates to this uh, issue of monopoly profits and stagnating wages. Among academic researchers, we all understand this new factor called investment. Not not many retail investors, uh, I think, are aware of this. The This new factor that was uh, uh, researched by many and popularized by Fama and French, Fama and French now, the, the famous inventors of the three-factor model, the market, value, and size, now have a five-factor model. They've added two factors, profitability and investment. And investment's the one I want to talk about. Investment refers to a very strong empirical relationship, a scientific finding that the more a company invests, the lower the returns are. Meaning capital expenditure actually works against the returns. The, hmm. Right. As Warren Buffett's been telling you for a long time, you don't want companies that have to invest to create their profits. You want companies that have a moat and generate monopoly profits. Right. And the less a company invests, the more they're rewarded in the stock market. And so we have don't have much investment. We don't have much capital investment. You get some cash, what do you do? You buy back your shares or you buy your competitor. Maybe you do a little of both. Uh, uh, but you don't invest for the future. Uh, mm. That's th th This is a scientific finding that comes out of the academy, that comes out of finance professors. It's the new factor in the Fama French five-factor model is go find companies that don't do any investing. Uh, that's responding to the environment that's been created. The, the, the environment, the rules of the game that we have is not competitive capitalism, where innovating and investing for the future uh, creates wealth. It's manipulating the system to create monopoly rents. That's how you create wealth. And until we change that system, uh, we're not going to change the uh, uh, results. You how, how do we change that system? Is it simply just a matter of saying, hey, uh, your CapEx expenditure um, is a separate line that doesn't affect your profitability, but your share buybacks does? H how can the rules, how can the regulatory and tax environment, I'm assuming you're saying we want more capital expenditure, we want more investment in the future. How can we encourage companies to think long-term when the market is rewarding companies that don't? I don't know if I'm overstating it there. Sure. But. I think the biggest, the simplest way to describe the problem is regulatory capture. Uh, the industry- Pharmaceutical, uh, oil, and energy, go down the list. Finance, for sure. Yes. Finance and banking, for sure. And I'll, I'll loop back to the longer version. If you want to understand the economics, I think you can do find no better 
discussion than Edmund Phelps' uh, mass flourishing. And if you want to understand the legal tools to address the issue, uh, read Tim Wu. Uh, that uh, there there are tools. We can do this. I mean, the the, the robber barons uh, were running the uh, economy before Teddy Roosevelt showed up. Right. Uh, there is going railroad to be... electricity going on the list. Yeah. Telegraph, quite fascinating. I have to tell you, that's an intriguing um, thesis you've laid out. I don't disagree with it. I'm I'm a little surprised at how forcefully you articulate it. Uh, I I certainly think you're you're right, and I've heard this from both the left and the right. Uh, Scott Galloway at, at NYU Stern wrote the four, and and his. Uh, recommendation was that Apple, Amazon, Google, and Facebook get broken up. They're too powerful. That's correct. It's quite quite amazing. So let's jump to our favorite questions while while we still have you. Um, tell us the most important thing most people don't know about your background. Um, boy, that I was, was going to go with you're from West Germany <laughs> originally. Uh, I was I, I was born in West Germany, but I was uh, uh, born to. Uh, my uh, dad and mom, who uh, my dad was serving in the military at the mm-hmm. time. Uh, so that's really much less interesting than it sounds. How about I have never lived uh, in one uh, house for as long as I've lived in Newport Beach, California, where I've lived for eight years. This is the longest I've ever lived in a house in my entire life. Well, every army brat tells the story <laughs> of getting moved around from uh, – you know, assignment to assignment, and I guess that that stays with you. So you met. Let's talk about your mentors. You mentioned one of your early mentors uh, who helped shape and guide your career uh, over time. Yeah, I'd say I have had the privilege of learning from a number of charismatic leaders. One and the first was Gary Brinson. I don't think I would uh, be nearly as successful in the investment management industry today without uh, without Gary's uh, example. Uh, second uh, was a fascinating woman named uh, Hilda Ochoa. Hilda was a a uh, refugee from Venezuela who ended up at uh, in the PhD program at Harvard University, ran the pension fund of the World Bank, spun that out into Strategic Investment Group. And when I left Brinson Partners, I ended up at Strategic Investment Group as the uh, as the eventually the CIO there. Hilda's in fascinating uh, innovator and entrepreneur. Uh, and while I was uh, the chair at TIFF, I had the privilege of working with uh, a, a fascinating individual named David Salem, uh, probably less known than some of these others, but uh, nonetheless a, uh, a fascinating figure in the nonprofit uh, investment world. And now finally, Rob Arnott, who uh, uh, is uh, quite well known. So I've, I've really had the privilege of getting to know a lot of uh, uh, fantastic uh, investors. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you so much for uh, doing this. We met some time ago, and I've been looking forward to having this conversation. I know Rob Arnott, the founder of Rafi, um, for a long time. He's a fascinating guy. Must be fun to work with. Um, you're in? Are you here? Or are you Newport Beach located? Newport Beach. Yeah, that's quite. That that might be one of the most beautiful places in America to. Uh, to go to work every day. I I joke with people. I ask them, do you know why we're headquartered in Newport Beach? Because you can. That's right. <laughs> for for those listeners who may not have ever been to that part, about an hour south of uh, L.A., maybe a little less, depending on traffic, it's just this uh, you have Balboa Island right over there. It's just this gorgeous part of Southern California. Everything you imagine Southern California is – but nicer. I mean, it really is kind of ridiculous. Everything's wonderful except for the traffic. No, they traffic is almost non-existent in Newport. If you live in Newport Beach and work in Newport Beach, it's wonderful. The problems are work. the price of real estate and the taxes. Price of real estate. So funny you say that. A uh, friend who I won't mention uh, was having a conversation with Rob about you know if you move to uh, Nevada, you live in Las Vegas. You won't have to pay state taxes. And his answer was, yeah, but then I have to live in Nevada. And he goes, I'm in what might be the most beautiful place in the world. I'm going to have to pay the the vig for staying there. You know, I spent a decade in Chicago, and I have a lot of friends in the business in Chicago. And I was there not too long ago uh, saying, 
boy, higher taxes are in your future. I, I've been you know, paying attention to what's going on with the pension problems in, Big in, in Illinois. Big in Illinois, for sure. And uh, the only way- And New way, Jersey and a yeah. few other places. So you're going to get California-like taxes in your future to b- fill this hole in the pension fund. And he says, you know, we can't do that, Chris. I said, what <laughs> now? We have the 13% state income tax uh, uh, in, uh, in California. It's that high? It it's is 13%? High. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot. And he says, you don't understand. You can raise the taxes to, you know, 10, 15 percent in California and nobody, they're not going to move to Nevada. Right. Some people, of course, do move to Nevada. But, Very few. But, but there's a, a magnet to the West Coast and to sure. California. He said, Illinois doesn't have that. People will move to Anywhere. Wisconsin, they'll move to Indiana. We can't take taxes up to uh, uh, to that level. Chicago happens to be a very reasonable city. It, it's a reasonable, it, it's big enough that it has whatever you want, um, but it's not as big as New York's where it's completely overwhelming. And their prices are much more reasonable than the coasts. The problem is your weather is much nicer. When you have Southern California weather, you could charge 13% and... In Chicago, if they in Illinois they raise it at a certain point, people would say, "All right, I'm going to Arizona. This is uh, this ta- high taxes plus terrible winters equals I'm out." And and that's been the shift southward uh, across the whole country. People have been making the argument it's political, but I really think it's weather based. I think it's both. I think Could it's be. taxes. I think it's a regulatory environment, and I think it's uh, uh, the weather. Um, so let's talk a little about, you mentioned some books. Um, you mentioned Tim Wu and Edmund Phelps' books. What other books do you think are essential reading? Or what do you just like to read if you want to relax? By the way, this is everybody's favorite question. People want reading suggestions more than anything. They don't know which of the 300,000 books that come out each year to read. So they take these very seriously. Yeah, sure. Uh if you want to understand the future of markets and the intersection of public policy and markets, the, the three books that I, I just mentioned are the ones of the dozens that I've read over the last few years that I think are most important. Phelps, Wu, and what's the third one? Uh, Jonathan Tepper. Oh, okay. It's uh, The Myth of Capitalism. Uh, when I want to escape, I don't read uh, about economics uh, and policy. Uh, I read uh, science fiction. Ah, me but too. What do you, what do you like? Escapist. So, nothing wrong with that. What do you like under sci-fi? I guess under fantasy instead of sci-fi. Uh, I loved the Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. and I loved it so much that after watching the series, I then read uh, all of the uh, books, and then I went back and uh, rewatched uh, uh, all of the series. Um, I also read uh, uh, one of one of my favorites. Although you're seeing less get published, is in a sort of subgenre called cyberpunk. Are you a Neil Stevenson fan? Absolutely. I I just got. Uh, I haven't read it yet, but I I have sitting on my uh, desktop Seven Eves. That's what is literally sitting on my night table. I read it. It's fabulous. Really, yeah. and then. Also on my list, that I, I'm going to throw you books that people have recommended to me that I haven't gotten to yet. The Three-Body Problem, people have raved about that trilogy from the author out of China. I'm really fascinated by by your list. So what are you most excited about right now? What What is the part of the industry that has you really enthusiastic? I am very enthusiastic about the opportunity to use 21st century technology. And part of it is financial technology. Part of it is financial modeling and predicting what's going to happen. But importantly, a lot of it is communication uh, technology, what we're doing right now to help educate investors to achieve uh, better outcomes. And I am very pleased to see the costs uh, being uh, reduced in the industry, the provision of investment strategies at couple of basis points, right? It used to be 100 basis points, 150 basis mm-hmm. points was the cost of investment strategy. Now it's 20 basis points or 10 basis points or five basis points and providing the average uh, investor the ability to compound wealth for their retirement uh, without 
uh, intermediaries uh, gobbling up uh, so much of the, uh, the, the returns. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. I left UBS. So Brinson Partners, where I kind of got my start, we sold ourselves. I was a partner of the firm. I made a little money on that sale to UBS. Uh, and I, I learned after a time there that that was not the place for me. I'm, I'm better off in smaller uh, employee-owned investment management firms than large uh, uh, uh Institutions. God, God love the people that thrive in large institutions because the world uh, appears to need them, but it's not a good fit for me. Uh, and I tried to start a um, quantitative equity market neutral hedge fund mm-hmm. in uh, 1999 to 2000 with some backing from a firm called Greenwich Capital. Greenwich oh, Capital sure. isn't around anymore, but uh, I had some friends at the top of that organization that were interested in exploring getting into the asset management industry. and Market neutral in 99-2000 should have done not too bad, right? It would have been a wonderful time. But as the environment turned uh, less conducive to risk-taking, or perhaps I was just not as persuasive as I had been the year before, uh, they decided to pull the plug on that endeavor. Uh, but w- I learned a lot in that uh, uh, a period of time. Um, I'll, I'll give you a, a, a lesson about uh, uh, marriage and a, a, a lesson uh, about uh, the structure of the quantitative investment management industry. After I determined I was going to be unsuccessful in starting that business, I just hung around the house for a while. I uh, helped coach my son's soccer team, and I got a lot of cycling in, and I just spent a lot of time around the house. And my wife explained to me, you know, Chris, for better or worse, but not for lunch, you need to go back and get a job. (laughs) Better or worse, but not for lunch. That's great. one of the fascinating uh, discoveries as I was recruiting people to join my uh, uh, never-to-be quantitative equity market neutral uh, global hedge fund was how many of the best staff I was recruiting, how many people I was interviewing, didn't work at what you and I think of as an investment management organization, but worked at family offices right here in Manhattan, and family offices of former prop traders, people that would leave Goldman Sachs prop desk or Lehman Brothers or Morgan Stanley with enough money that they didn't need to manage money for anybody else. Mm -hmm. And they would hire these incredibly gifted quants from India or from China. And Uh, I think people don't realize that most of the money that is made by arbitraging inefficiencies in the capital markets these days is not uh, in funds that are invested uh, investing uh, the, the money of Harvard University or the uh, state of California's pension fund. It's mostly private money, uh, and and that's where those uh, those profits go. There's an enormous amount of professional investment expertise applied to the management of individual family money. Not investable to the public. Not investable but, to the public. They're not even. They're not even registered investment management companies. They're just the money. office, uh, 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 and and they they don't want to attract attention. My my favorite part of the Renaissance Technologies story with Jim Simons was at a certain point they realized their ability to generate alpha was limited and and only scaled up so large. And when their own investments hit that point, they told their outside investors, "Hey, thanks so much for coming by, but." We, we don't want your capital anymore. We, we're going to take this ourselves. And that's a well-known example. What I found is that there are dozens, perhaps hundreds of similar outfits here in New York City that never took private money, ever. Huh. Uh, uh, never took outside money. And these aren't giant multi-billion, necessarily giant multi-billion family offices. These are 50, 100, 250 million dollars. Am I, am I ballpark? I don't think we know. They don't have to tell us. Huh. That that's quite fascinating. You mentioned cycling. What do you what do you do for fun? What do you do to relax? 
What do you do to, to stay trim and fit? I, one of the benefits of living in Newport Beach in Southern California is that I can cycle all year round. So I both uh, get out on my road bike uh-huh. and I, uh, I spend time on my mountain bike. Uh, and then uh, I go to the gym a few times each week because I have to keep uh, 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 fit so that I can, uh, I can cycle and I can ski and I can hike. That, that Southern California lifestyle sounds uh, increasingly um, attractive. So a millennial or recent college grad comes up to you and says, I'm thinking about going into finance as a career. What sort of advice would you give them? Here's some advice. My uh, daughter, Amy, when she was growing up, she wanted to be in fashion merchandising. Mm -hmm. But then she went to college and decided, you know, maybe I should be a little more practical. Uh, And uh, she started her major in economics. After a few years in economics, she decided that that wasn't really where she wanted to go. She wanted to, and she switched to psychology. And one of the things that Amy found is that she had taken a full raft of stats classes for economics. And then when she switched to psychology, they said, oh, no, no, those are econ stats classes. You need psych stats classes. So she had to take a double load of statistics. Uh, Amy uh, uh, started a, a digital advertising agency here in New York. And when she was talking to her younger uh, uh, sibling, my uh, son, John, uh, when he was uh, entering college, he said, you know what? You really need to take stats. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's been uh, the most uh, helpful thing for me in my career in digital advertising. And it's equally true, I think, in the investment management industry uh, become numerate, uh, uh, take statistics. Uh, the, the, the world, uh, has become the, the, the professional world puts a premium on numeracy. I, I think that's great advice. And our final question, what is it that you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew 35 years ago when you were first starting? Humility is enormously important to professional development. Can't say I disagree with that. Any particular reason that led you to that? And you're not the first person who has mentioned it, but... As I've advanced in my career, it has become more and more important to inspire other people, to build a team to uh, nurture and help other people grow. And one can't do that effectively without a humility. I, I, for me to succeed, I have to lead a group of people, all of whom, or at least many of whom, are smarter, uh, better educated, and more productive than I am. And, and one can't do that without a, a considerable a degree of humility. Quite, quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Chris Brightman. He is the Chief Investment Officer of Research Affiliates. If you enjoy this conversation, well, look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes uh, or Stitcher, Overcast, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. And you can see any of the other 250 such conversations we've had over the previous five or so years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff who helps put together this conversation each week. Cowan O'Brien is our audio engineer. Taylor Riggs is our booker slash producer. Uh, Atika Valbron is our project manager. And Michael Patnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not uh, as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.